All right, that's a good segue. We're in Micah chapter 2. We'll get to reading the passage in just a moment. I'd like to cover the entire chapter and uh, keep pressing through. I know that's a big chunk, um, so we're doing in the evenings more survey type of uh, preaching, and in the mornings I think we're taking a, a little more closer look in Mark, although last week in Mark we took a big bite, but we will cover hopefully the entire chapter here in the next half hour. Um, remember that Micah is a prophet who is ministering right around the same time as the uh, Assyrian captivity. So this is the, the judgment of God on the northern kingdom of Israel. And so we'll see that some of Micah's prophecy, some of the oracles that are compiled in his book, um, are focused on uh, the upcoming judgment, and then we'll also see some laments about the current judgment because Micah's ministry stretches past 722 B.C. into the actual time of judgment, which is interesting. So we're looking at these oracles, and, and so far Micah is pronouncing future judgment on the people. And I told you before that Micah is focusing in uh, on three specific sins that Israel has committed against God. And by the way, Judah is included in Micah's oracles, though their primary judgment would come later. Um, but they're, they're in the wrong too. They're doing the same things that Israel is doing. And uh, so the first sin is what chapter 1 is all about. It is the sin of idolatry. And we talked last week about how severe God's judgment is. We talked about can God be just to offer such severe judgment for a sin that we quickly excuse in many ways. We quickly excuse our idolatry. Sure, maybe I you know, treat that thing as more important than God and I, I'd rather obey the commands of my culture than, than God's commands and I, I elevate other things in my life above the place of God and I fail to worship Him and I fail to attribute to Him the glory that's due to Him. But that's not a big deal. I didn't kill anybody. Um, it is a big deal. But something that we didn't quite emphasize enough, and I had a conversation with a church member after the service, is that Israel's idolatry had led them into a load of other heinous sins. I mean, if you just read the, the, the books of Kings, the books of Chronicles, and at any time, and I said this on Wednesday night, so you Wednesday night people are hearing this twice, any time you read that Israel's worshiping Molech, you can assume they're sacrificing children. Okay? Anytime... Uh, you read of some of the pagan fertility gods, you can assume that there's fertility rituals, and we'll leave it at that, going on along with the worship of these gods. So there's all kinds of wickedness that Israel is being led into. Uh, and they're being led into it by their pagan neighbors whom they had failed to drive out of the land and who continued to lead their heart away from God throughout their time in the promised land. So idolatry is the first sin that Micah focuses in on. He talks about it all through chapter 1. And I've already alluded to this, but chapter 2 is focused on a different sin. And uh, let's just go ahead and read the chapter, and we'll follow the same uh, organization that we have done. We'll read the chapter, we'll work through the chapter, and, and uncover some of the more difficult-to-understand sayings, and then we'll apply it. Micah says, "'Woe to them that devise iniquity!' and work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it, because it is in the power of their hand. And they covet fields and take them by violence, and houses and take them away, 
So they oppress a man in his house, even a man in his heritage. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, against this family do I devise an evil, from which ye shall not remove your necks, neither shall ye go haughtily, for this time is evil. In that day shall one take up a parable against you and lament with a doleful lamentation and say, We be utterly spoiled. He that hath changed the, por- uh, the portion of my people, how hath he removed it from me? Turning away, he hath divided our fields. Therefore thou shalt have none that shall cast a cord by lot in the congregation of the Lord. Prophesy ye not, say they to them that prophesy. They shall not prophesy to them that they shall not take shame. O thou that art named among the house of Jacob, uh, O thou that art named the house of Jacob, excuse me, is the spirit of the Lord straightened? Are these his doings? Do not my words do him do good to him that walketh uprightly? Even of late my people are risen up as an enemy. Ye pull off the robe with the garment from them that pass by securely as men averse from war. The women of my people have ye cast out from their pleasant houses. From their children uh, have ye taken away my glory forever. Arise ye and depart, for this is not your rest. Because it is polluted, it shall destroy you, even with a sore destruction. If a man walking in the spirit and falsehood do lie, saying, I will prophesy unto thee of wine and of strong drink, he shall even be the prophet of this people. I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as the sheep of Basra, as the flock in the midst of their fold. They shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. The breaker has come up before them. They have broken up and have passed through the gate and are gone out by it and their king shall pass before them, and the Lord on the head of them. Let's pause for prayer, and then we'll look closely at these verses. Father, thank you for the prophets. Thank you that their message is still relevant to us today, that it reveals God, and that we even see glimpses here of your future work that is still to come. Would you give us understanding? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're not very familiar with the book of Micah, you could read chapter 2 and go, What? I don't know, some of you might be feeling that way. I, I mean, uh, Micah is a, he's a, he's an excellent writer. And we looked at some of the, we'll call it poetic language, okay? Some of the flowery language of chapter one. And if you were reading this in Hebrew, you'd probably have a much greater appreciation of how good of a writer he is. I will say when it comes over into English, it can be a little hard to understand because you lose that poetic feeling that it has. So, All that that means is that we have to study a little bit harder, but I've never been afraid of a little hard work, and hopefully you're not either. So we'll apply ourselves to wisdom, okay? We will strive after it here, okay? So Micah chapter 2, and I'll just give you the summary one more time. God is displeased with his people. He's pronouncing a very severe judgment on them, and it's actually a very suitable judgment. We will see in just a moment. But in this chapter, his primary issue is the oppression of, of the poor and the vulnerable in Israel. And also we see Judah is kind of doing the same thing, and Judah is mentioned here a few times as well. Uh, I want to share with you a summary of this chapter from uh, uh, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, who is very uh, well-known commentators. They title this chapter, Denunciation of the Evils Prevalent, The People's Unwillingness to Hear the Truth, The Expulsion from the Land, the fitting fruit of their sin, 
yet Judah and Israel are hereafter to be restored. It's an extremely good summary of the various parts of these oracles. Now remember, Micah is preaching these oracles throughout his ministry, which was at least 40 years long. Um, some people would say maybe closer to 60 years of prophetic ministry, which would be, for a prophet, a very long time. Um, and this is a compilation that I believe Micah made at the very end of his ministry of all the oracles he ever preached for posterity under the inspiration of the Spirit to compile these. So these are several different oracles that are related, kind of similar to how Mark took several parables this morning in the passage and put them together because they were related. And we'll see that sometimes there's kind of a, um, a surprising jump from one oracle to another, so you've got to pay attention to when he's changing topics. Okay, So let's work through it. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. So here's what Mike is pointing out. This evil that these people are doing is premeditated evil. This is not an evil of passion, okay, where... You know, think about how we, how we delineate the punishment for murder, okay? If you premeditated murdered somebody, that you're going to get the worst penalty possible, okay, in the American legal system. If it was you killed somebody in a fit of passion, um, your sentence may be reduced because of that. And if you accidentally kill somebody, we call that a completely different crime. We call that manslaughter, and it has a completely different punishment, so here we have the evil that these people are committing. And God is pointing out, this wasn't in a fit of passion. You weren't desperate. Okay? This wasn't out of desperation. And this wasn't an accident. You knew it was wrong. You laid in your bed. You thought it through. You weighed out what you thought the consequences would be. And then you went out and did evil anyway. So God is saying, I have all the more reason to be upset with you because you knew what you were doing. And how does God know that they knew what they were doing? Well, God searches the hearts. And uh, I think certainly premeditated evil worthy of, of, of great judgment, it's certainly an opportunity for us to see, search ourselves and think of the times when we do wrong and the times that we choose to do wrong. Like we know this is wrong, but we can explain it away in our heads. We can justify it with saying things like, well, everybody's doing it and nobody's going to get hurt or nobody will ever find out, fill in the blank with whatever justifications, but we know ahead of time that what we're going to do is wrong and we follow our hearts to do it anyway. So this is, this is the accusation of God against his people. The accusation is, you premeditated this evil. And what was the sin that they premeditated to do? Uh, verse 2, they covet fields. So here they are, they're planning, they're plotting. In their planning and plotting, they're already committing a sin of coveting things that aren't theirs. And then what do they do? They take them by violence and houses and take them away. So they oppress a man in his house, even a man and his heritage. So the, we haven't discovered who yet, but someone is taking somebody else's property by, and the word here is violence. Now this word does include the things you'd normally think of as violence. You know, you harm somebody, you intimidate them, you threaten them, or even murder. I will kill you to take the things that I want. But the Hebrew word here that's translated for violence is broader than our word for violence. 
It also includes shady business dealings. So I just, um, you know, I told a little white lie. I manipulated the system. I, uh, I took advantage of the law so that I could take what I wanted from you. I think of, um, you know, when I served as a youth pastor, I dealt with this all the time. We'd have like a new game. It's not a sport. You know, like basketball, you have like a whole book of rules. It's very carefully delineated, like what you can and cannot do. All organized sports are that way. We'd be playing a game that's not an organized sport. And the rules that I would give would be like 10 bullet points, okay? Not a whole book of rules. So what can you do when there's not a whole book of rules? You can break the game, okay? You can, well, you never said we couldn't, is what, and I'd have to stop the game. You can't do that. Well, you never said we couldn't do that. Well, if it breaks the game <laughs> and it makes it not fun anymore for everybody else, don't do that thing. There you go. There's the 11th bullet point. See, they were kind of twisting and trying to work around the rules, and you know, maybe they knew and maybe they didn't that this is not the right thing to do to break the game and really frustrate their youth pastor. Well, here we have some people, and somehow they're getting away with using these oppressive means to take property away from those who are vulnerable. And they might even say, well, technically, what I'm doing is legal. Yeah, but is it kind? Because these people, they're stealing away people's livelihoods. They're kicking them out of their homes. And, and maybe they would say, well, I'm allowed to charge that interest rate. And they couldn't pay, so they're like Ebenezer Scrooge, okay? So, and, and some of the things they're doing, certainly they seem to be illegal. Some of them just seem to be unkind. And whether this is by the traditional idea of violence that they're taking these things away, or whether it's just that they're manipulating and scheming to get the things that they want and get away with it, Whatever it be, what they're doing is not right. It's not right. They're going to get what they want by any means necessary. They're willing to cheat, to threaten, to sabotage. I'll do whatever I have to do to get my way. It's just business. It's just business. Who do they sound like? They sound exactly like the nations, okay? So the, the Old Testament. The Old Testament says, uh, refers to everybody who's not Israel as the nations, okay? It sounds exactly like the, the nations. I was reminded as I was reading and looking at what Israel's behavior is in this passage. I recently was uh, reading, um, and we'll get there, Ezra and Nehemiah, okay? So in, in, in Ezra and Nehemiah, we get an account of the people have come back to Jerusalem to rebuild Jerusalem in the temple, and all the nations are doing to Israel, exactly what the rich are doing to the poor in Israel at this time. All the nations are like, by every means necessary, trying to get Israel kicked back out of their land. They're lying, they're threatening, they're bullying, they're writing letters to the emperor and spinning tales and telling lies to the emperor. Uh, they are mocking. It's like there's no difference between how the world is doing their business and here, you know, this is a few hundred years earlier, how Israel is doing their business. It doesn't matter if it's thoughtful or kind. As long as I get what I want, I'm willing to do what's necessary. Let's not be convinced that God overlooks societal sin. Sins of oppression of the poor and the vulnerable, sins of unfair business dealings, sins of seizure of a person's livelihood. God is concerned with all these things, which should lead us, one, to be careful about our business dealings. 
that we do it not just fairly, although definitely fairly is included, but with kindness. So that's one thing. But the other thing is, if you're on the receiving end of this, and you're, you've been oppressed, and you've been treated unfairly, and you've been cheated, know that God knows. And not only does God know, He cares. He's concerned. And you don't have to get even with the people who hurt you. Vengeance is mine, says God. I will repay. He'll take care of it. You don't need to be mean back. Uh, the Christian principle that Jesus taught is if a person strikes you, turn the other cheek so they can strike that one too. God is the avenger. God knows He will take care of you. He's concerned with the societal ills that we face. Verse 3, Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, against this family, okay, so we're talking about Israel here, do I devise an evil from which ye shall not remove your necks, neither shall ye go haughtily, for this time is evil. You say, God's going to do evil? Wait a minute. God is not the author of evil. True. You've got to understand the principle of evil in the Bible because evil can refer to sin. That's not what we're talking about. Evil can also refer to any bad thing that happens to you. Okay? So sometimes God allows bad things to happen to us. And that, that allowance can be judgment for our sin. And that's what's happening here. God is going to allow evil, is the King James word, but really a bad thing to happen to His people because of their sin. And it's interesting how it's described, from which ye shall not remove your necks. Okay, So the description is, here's how this judgment is going to look. It's going to look like a yoke. Like you would put on a, like an ox to, or a... A, a, or a horse to plow your field, okay? You're going to be subjugated like we subject animals to ourselves. You're going to be subject that way to someone else. At each step, God declares the sin and then He shows a perfectly suitable judgment. So here, these people would oppress the vulnerable so by someone mightier than them, they will be oppressed. That's the judgment. Seems fair. Verse 4 is a little bit um, harder to understand, but once you get it, it's, uh, it's very interesting. In that day, shall one take up a parable? Now, we've heard a lot about parables lately. A parable against you and lament with doleful lamentations and say, and we'll talk about what they say in just a minute. So what's happening here? Here's what happens. When you are taken away and this yoke is put on you, a yoke of judgment, and you'll be oppressed by someone greater than you, when this happens, you're going to cry out. You're going to cry out in grief and lamentation, and all your enemies are going to make fun of you. So right now, when we read what they say, you're going to see that this is like, it's a cry of, of grief, of lamentation, but it's not being sung by the people of Israel. It's being sung by their enemies as mockery. Look at it. Verse, um, oh man, is this verse 4? We be utterly spoiled. He hath changed the portion of my people. How hath he removed it from me? Turning away, he hath divided our fields. So you can imagine the people who've come, they've taken the land, and they hear the people of Israel 
griping and complaining about how bad their judgment is. And they're just, oh, it's so sad. Oh, it's so sad that our land got taken away. Oh, our God forsook us. Oh, you guys, that's how you sound. That's what the enemies of Israel are saying to them. Um, You didn't realize that the Assyrians were actually every bully from every 90s kids movie. Uh, But they happen to be, apparently. Oh, man, God abandoned us, blah, blah, blah. But seriously, that's the picture that that Micah is painting, that they're going to be in derision of their enemies. Um, Think of the humiliation that the people of Israel faced after enjoying hundreds of years in the kingdom as God's chosen people. And now not only have they lost their possessions, they lost their dignity. That's part of the judgment. God spared many of their lives but took their dignity and the nations laugh. Now let me say this. Were the nations right to mock Israel? No. Okay? Um, it's just a natural by, byproduct of Israel's judgment that the nations would laugh, but they shouldn't be. And I will say this. There will come a day when the nations will stop laughing because God will be just and God does not abandon His people. Uh, Verse 5, Therefore thou shalt have none that cast the cord by lot in the congregation of the Lord. What does that mean? You probably wouldn't know if you didn't look it up. Okay, so casting the lot by cord is the way that uh, the, the lands were originally divided by God, first into the 12 tribes, um, but then into individual land plots given to individual families. This is the method that they used. And basically, Micah is saying, you won't need that anymore. You won't have to divide land anymore because you won't even own it anymore. And that whole system of land ownership and all the maps that showed you whose land was where and where all the lines were drawn and all the surveyor notes, it's all going to be thrown in the trash can because it's not even going to be your land anymore. It's going to be redivided for somebody else. So then, Micah's pronouncing this judgment all the way up to verse 5. And then we get a brief word from the people he's pronouncing judgment against. They have a couple of words to say to Micah because they don't like this. They're saying, you know, Micah, I, I don't believe you. You haven't done anything that bad. And it's not in God's character to do the types of things you're saying he's going to do. He loves us. He would never take us out of the land. So listen to their words here, verse 6. The first three words are their words. Prophesy ye not, say, that, say they to them that prophesy. They're saying, Micah, be quiet. From verse 7 to the, to, for the next few verses, from verse 7 to 11, I will say it's a little hard to understand what Micah is saying. And the reason is because there's no quotation marks in the Hebrew text. We know that there's a discourse happening here and there's probably three people involved, three groups of people. There's Micah, there's these, um, what a lot of people just call the land grabbers, okay, these unfair businessmen who are taking advantage of people. And there's a third group that slips in here, the false prophets. These are the people who say all the things that the rich people want them to say. They pretend to be prophets, they pretend to have prophecy, and they come in, and they say exactly what you want to hear. They come to tickle the ears. So there's a, there's a discourse here happening between those three groups of people 
It's kind of hard to know who's saying what, and we'll work through it a little bit, but I'll tell you that the message that Micah is giving is totally clear. It's totally clear what they're being accused of and what's happening. I believe verse 7 shows God's response to them telling His prophet to be quiet. Verse 7, O thou that art named the house of Jacob, is this the spirit? Is the spirit of the Lord straightened? Are these His doings? Do not my words do good to him that walketh uprightly? Starts with an accusation. So this is what you are called? You're called the house of Jacob? Well, you're not acting like it. But you're called the house of Jacob. And then he says, um, here's, here's the gist of what's being said. God says, my law and my expectation of you has never changed. It's never changed. I've always expected the same thing of you. And if my words, uh, if your deeds were good, you'd like what I had to say. You'd like to hear that wickedness is being judged. You'd like to hear that I am righteous and just. But because your deeds are evil, that's why you hate my messenger. It's not really the messenger's fault. Stop being so mean to Micah. You're just mad because you know you're wrong. And you know you deserve judgment. Verse 8, even of late, my people is arisen up as an enemy. You pull off the robe with the garment from them that pass by securely as men averse from war. So these people, they're going out, they're taking advantage of people on the street, they're, they're taking away their stuff, they're using violence, they're using manipulation, they're using legal loopholes to take advantage of people. And then, you know, if they use violence to the point that the men of the house are out of the picture, whatever you'll make of that, look at what happens next. They don't stop there. It isn't just the men that they oppress. Verse 9, the women, or in other words, the widows of my people, have you cast out from their pleasant houses. From their children have you taken away my glory forever. So it's not just men that are being oppressed. It's widows. It's children. It's the most vulnerable people of society. And those that are taking advantage don't care. Well, it's not my fault they were born poor. Isn't that from, uh, isn't that Scrooge that says that? Well, maybe they should consider not being born poor. God says, remember who it is you're afflicting. Look at the very last few words of that verse. From their children have you taken away my glory forever. He says, remember whose people these are. My people aren't just the kings and the nobles and the priests and the people of influence. These are all my people. You are afflicting my people on whom I have put my glory. Verse 10, Arise ye and depart, for this is not your rest. Because it is polluted, it shall destroy you, even with a sore destruction. So here's another righteous judgment, okay? You're oppressing these people. You're kicking them out of their homes so you can have their land. You're kicking out not just women, or not just men, who they seem to have murdered, but women and children too. You're casting them out of their homes so they'll be homeless and destitute. So here's my judgment. You're going to be homeless too. Go ahead and pack your bags. Your time in your house is done because the Assyrians are coming and they're bringing my judgment. That seems pretty fair. You drove people out of their houses, I'll drive you out of yours. Verse 11, 
If a man walking in the spirit and falsehood do lie, saying, I will prophesy unto thee of wine and of strong drink, he shall even be the prophet of this people. So here's, <laughs> Micah's taking a, a shot at the false prophets who have joined up with, uh, with these oppressive rulers within Israel. And here's what he's saying. If you had a prophet who came to you and said, good times ahead, only good times to come. Just keep doing what you're doing. In fact, there's going to be liquor everywhere. We're all just going to be drinking and having a good time. He's like, that's the kind of prophet you're looking for. It's not the prophet you got. I came here to tell you that you're living in sin. Um, <laughs> how he characterizes the false prophets um, is pretty intense. They're saying, we don't need you, Micah. We don't need your prophecy. They're saying, come back when you have something nice to say. Like, if you're willing to say that everything's going to be great. Yeah, we, that's the kind of prophet we want to listen to. That's not the prophecy they're getting. And then we get a really sharp turn in this chapter. It's like these serious oracles and the oracles about false prophets, the oracles about those who are killing and taking advantage of the poor and getting everything they can by every means necessary and there's all this greed. And then there's like this total pivot in verse 12 because Micah's been saying, you're going to be taken away. You're going to be taken away into captivity and all of this very appropriate judgment is going to happen to you. But then God's judgment will not last forever. Verse 12. I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as the sheep of Basra, as the flock in the midst of their fold. They shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. The breaker is come up before them. They have broken up and have passed through the gate and are gone out by it. And their king shall pass before them and the Lord on the head of them. So now we're getting a future prophecy even further down the line. Actually, much further. God is saying, you are going to face this judgment. We already saw in chapter 1, it's at the gate. There's no going back now. The judgment is coming and there's no stopping it. But the judgment will not be forever. What God is assuring the people of is that he has not abandoned his promises to Abraham and Moses and David. He says, you're going to be driven out of the land, yes, but not forever. I will gather you together and bring you back and fulfill my promises. And we see that actually when the people are brought back into their land, they are led by the Lord. And you see that he's called the breaker. And I know that sounds like um, a nickname for like a bouncer. Um, you know, the breaker. But actually what this means is that as, as Jesus, as God, leads his people back into the blessing that was promised to Abraham, he's going to break down every barrier ahead of them. So even though there seems like there's going to be obstacles in the way of God fulfilling his promise the way he said he would fulfill it, he's going to break down all those barriers. He's going to do it, even though it seems unlikely. On Wednesday nights, We've been talking about all the prayers in the Bible. We've been talking about Abraham. What is the test that comes to Abraham over and over and over again? Will you believe my promise? Will you trust in me? Is the question that God continuously asks of Abraham. And he intentionally puts Abraham in situations where Abraham has to decide if he's going to choose to trust that God will literally fulfill his promises 
or whether he's going to decide that, oh, well, maybe God didn't mean what he said, or maybe God doesn't fulfill his promises the way that we, we thought he would, and maybe this prophecy isn't what we thought it would be. But this test didn't end with Abraham. Actually, all of Scripture, we see question marks. Wait, I thought God said whatever. How's he going to do that? This is Abraham's question. How's he going to give me a child when I'm 100 and Sarah's 90? Like, that doesn't make any sense. And actually, that's kind of what's being presented here because God is saying, I'm going to bring back my people and fulfill my promises to them later. And even though it seems like there's going to be barriers in the way, I will break them down. And you say, when did that happen? When did God fulfill all these promises to Israel that he promised Abraham? Like, I remember that they came back, right? And they rebuilt the temple, right? And they rebuilt Jerusalem. But that doesn't seem like everything that God promised to Abraham. It doesn't seem like they were all gathered in in a great multitude like Micah is describing. When did that happen? It hasn't happened yet. We're looking forward to God fulfilling all those promises. I'll share with you a quote. This is from uh, John Martin's commentary on this passage. He says, The long-awaited time of blessing will come about for the nation of Israel in the millennium. Some interpreters claim that this promise of blessing is being fulfilled now in the church rather than in the future for Israel. However, if Micah 2.12 refers to a spiritual blessing for the church, then Israel has been misled all these centuries since Abraham to think that she will inherit the land forever. This is exactly the issue that Abraham faced. So we've decided, well, I can't see how God would fulfill this promise. I can't see how he has. I can't see how he would. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So maybe God didn't mean it literally. Maybe this is a figurative thing, which is exactly what Abraham does to God at least twice. He suggests to God, oh, did you mean, did you mean that you were going to give me my inheritance by my servant? Oh, that makes sense, because I already have a servant. He has kids. Oh, wait, wait, so not my servant. Oh, you meant Ishmael, my illegitimate child, right? Wait, neither of those? You're actually literally going to fulfill your promise to me the way you said you were going to? We have to be careful not to spiritualize the promises of God. And there are large swaths of, of Christians and their true believers who've done this with God's promises to Israel. They spiritualized them because they figured, I can't see how God's going to do that at this point. And there was a huge reversal uh, when Israel was reinstituted as a state, as a sovereign nation, uh, after World War II, when they were recognized internationally, and it was, became a, a home for the Jews, the only place in the world that they could go. And people were like, wait a minute. Maybe God actually could do this. Maybe he could gather his people back to the land and, and fulfill his promises to Abraham. Wait. And there was like this huge craze where people got back to a clear historic understanding of there's a millennium to come where God is going to fulfill all these promises. And then the, I would say that the um, novelty of that has worn off a little bit in other views, explanations of, well, maybe it's all figurative. Those are kind of becoming popular again. But I take God at his word. I think he means this. I think it would be very hard to justify a God who would say what he's saying in Micah 2.12 
and then say, well, actually, we're going to give that promise to the church. Yeah, the church can have the land. I, I'm, I'm done with Abraham. I, I'll just transfer that promise to somebody else. Doesn't make sense. But what does make sense is that God is going to fulfill this promise. And he's going to fulfill it in a way where, yeah, there are barriers to God fulfilling this promise, but he's the breaker. He breaks down all those barriers so that he can do what he said he was going to do. This is exactly what happened with Jesus. If you were a Jewish person in uh, the 400 years leading up to Jesus' birth, and you're like, I see all these promises about Messiah strewn throughout the Scriptures. I have no idea how this can all work out. There's no way that this can all, like, he's going to be a king, but he's going to be born in Bethlehem, and he's going to come out of Egypt, and he's going to be, come out of Nazareth. How can he come out of three places? It doesn't make any sense. How can he be from three places? And how, you know, this and that and all these, it doesn't make a lot of sense to us. And why is he being described as a lamb being slaughtered, but he's also being described as a king who's victorious and conquers everything? I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. But guess what? God broke down all the barriers and set things up perfectly to fulfill things exactly the way he said they were going to be, which surprised everybody. They were all like, whoa, we didn't know that God was literally going to do those things he said. So this promise here of the gathering of God's people, he's saying, yes, you're going to face oppression, you're going to be dispersed. There's going to be a long time where it doesn't seem like I'm fulfilling my promises, but I will. But I will. This is a wonderful thing about God. He is a promise-keeping God. All right, let me offer you a couple of final thoughts for past time. First of all, when we look at the sin of Israel, we need to be encouraged to deal fairly and kindly with others. God sees that and He cares. It's not all about your religiosity. It's not all about how often you attend church and how much you read your Bible if you're treating people terribly and you're not doing things fairly. We see that the land grabbers wanted recognition. They got ridicule. They wanted riches. They got robbed. They wanted real estate. They got real evicted from their own houses. That was a stretch, I know. God is concerned with our fairness, with our order, with our compassion. So that's, I think, the first thing we draw from this chapter. Secondly, we need to listen to the true teachings of God, not just the teachings that tickle our ears. These land grabbers kept doing what they were doing because they had these false prophets along who just told them everything they wanted to hear instead of telling them what God really says. We don't have anybody in America who just tells you what you want to hear, do we? There's no preachers that do that. None. Now, I would say the vast majority of people who claim to be Christians in America go to churches where their ears get tickled and nobody talks about their sin. That's my opinion. So I think the third thing that we draw from this passage is that we need to expect God to fulfill His promises. Literally. He's a promise-keeping God who loves to restore, who loves to forgive, and who blesses abundantly. We can rest in every promise that He's given. Let's close our time in prayer, and then we'll sing a song. Father, thank You again that You are a promise-keeping God. Lord, help us to be people who live honorably, who deal fairly and kindly, who think of the well-being of others before we think of our own riches. And Father, as you continue to change us and lead us towards the fulfillment of your promises for your people, would you bless 
and we'll praise you and glorify your name. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.